All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechneepFMC.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream Podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE, founded Energy Energia Consulting LLC, and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC for sponsoring our podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your pet. And now, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Anne Bradbury, Chief Executive Officer for American Exploration and Production Council. Hi, Anne. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Elena. Great to be here. Anne Bradbury is CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council, AXPC, whose membership is comprised of America's leading independent oil and natural gas exploration production companies. Prior to joining the American Exploration and Production Council, Ms. Bradbury served as one of the top legislative strategists and technicians in Congress as floor director to two successive speakers of the House of Representatives and deputy floor director in offices of both the majority and minority leader. During her decade-long career on Capitol Hill, Anne was instrumental in the implementation and adoption of major rules packages, and legislative initiatives ranging from reforms to national security and intelligence policy to healthcare, energy, transportation, trade, and education policy passed by the House of Representatives. And what a career. I'm so glad that you're here <laughs> with us today. Thank you again. So uh, before we get started, I just want to share with our um, audience that we are recording live here at Zero Week uh, in Houston, Texas. So, so Anne, tell us uh, more about uh, AXPC. PC, yeah. So um, as you mentioned, AXPC represents the leading onshore independent oil and gas producers. And um, our chief mission is to educate and advocate for those companies and for uh, responsible and common sense policies around uh, oil and gas production here in the United States with federal policymakers. We also play a role amongst our companies in supporting a lot of their goals around health and safety and emissions reductions. Um, and so we provide a forum and collaboration 
and benchmarking for our companies uh, in their goals of constant improvement in some of those really important areas. So um, I've been at the at AXPC for about three years, and uh, it's been a real joy. I have, you know, you, you're familiar with the industry and with a lot of my companies, and uh, they really are uh, doing amazing work, and I'm really proud to represent them in Washington. Oh, gosh, and we're glad that, we, that you do. Um, Upstream is all about exploration production, so I'm so glad that you're here with us today. So, um, so tell us, how did you get into the oil and gas business specifically and AXPC? So I have a, a friend in Washington who sort of says, uh, you know, if, you know, either you find energy or energy finds you. Um, and in this case, energy kind of found me. Um, so I will say I do have a little bit of background, actually, um, in a different way in that um, I used to be a landowner in Pennsylvania. Oh. And so I saw a lot of the Marcellus Shale development oh, firsthand um, up in Northeast Pennsylvania and, you know, saw that it was, you know, very much compatible and even supportive with things like agriculture development. Um, and, you know, it was really became a lifeblood for these small communities. So I was predisposed to have, uh, you know, a very favorable impression of the shale industry uh, to begin with. Uh, I also, you know, I worked on Capitol Hill, as you mentioned, for um, over a decade. And um, I was the floor director, which means I was sort of in charge of the process around everything that happened in the floor of the House of Representatives. Um, but I loved, so, so I got to see a little bit of everything at like sort of a 10,000 foot level. And I really loved energy policy. And, you know, I did that at a time when, you know, the American energy revolution was happening. And so we were passing really important energy bills. And, um, you know, I was there in part of the lifting of the oil export ban. And so oh, I, wow. you know, I, I had a, you know, I had already dipped my, you know, foot in the water or my toe in the water of, of uh, being an energy person, you know, from a, a generalist perspective. Um, and then when I left the Hill, I did some consulting for a few years. Um, and then this opportunity presented itself. And um, it's, it's again, it's, it truly has been like such a joy for the last three years to do this. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that. I'm so glad you had that experience. You know, when we were trying to develop unconventionals, there were so many myths mm-hmm. around it. There was still a lot of technology being developed. But it was really some of the misinformation really made it scary for people. And yeah. so here you have had, you know, organic experience with it, and then you were able to take it to the Hill and really share with people and untangle some of the rhetoric yeah. surrounding all of that to bring us um, some of the good policies that we that we have. And of course, it was all of this uh, E&P activity and the shale development hydraulic fracturing that made us energy, you know, independent or yeah. something like energy Energy secure, yeah. Energy right? secure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it was really interesting to see it from a couple different perspectives. And, you know, and I'll say when we, um, you know, when, when we were approached about leasing our land to an oil and gas company for development, like there was a real hesitation because I didn't know anything about it. It was very new at the time. And, uh, so we kind of did our homework and, and did it. And, um, again, as it, as it unfolded, just, you know, very positive all around. And so, um, it was really fun to kind of have that, have that experience on Capitol Hill because not a lot of the policymakers that are, that are doing that have that perspective. So, so that was a real important service that you provided for the industry, being able to just explain, just translate for, for people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Well, so what are some of your goals with um, AFPC? Yeah, so again, we, um, you know, our, our, our probably, you know, main reason for existence is to be an advocacy organization for um, for my companies on the Hill. And so we 
we take that really seriously. We try to take a very collaborative approach to our engagement with policymakers. We do a lot of education on, you know, to, to your point, there's a lot of misinformation and myths and misunderstandings around energy production, around hydraulic fracturing. Um, and so we really try to be a resource for policymakers. We try to be a constructive voice um, to policymakers, both on the Hill and in the administration, um, on these really important issues. Um, I'll say some of our priorities right now are in the regulatory space around EPA regulations of methane, um, DOI regulations on federal land, because uh, we do have a lot of uh, the big producers on federal lands. Um, and we're even getting into to some regulatory uh, work at the SEC around their climate disclosure rules. As you know, the Biden administration has talked about taking a whole of government approach to climate. And so there are agencies that you wouldn't normally see energy policy coming out of that are engaging in the space. And so we've had to, to react to that um, and to be able to respond. And then on the Hill, um, you know, we're continuing to build out our network of advocates on the Hill. Um, and one of the things that everyone is, is really quite excited about is the opportunity for permitting reform. Um, you know, you know very well that uh, we need to be able to build things in this country. We need to be able to build energy infrastructure in this country. And it's been really interesting because we've also heard folks in the Biden administration and Democrats who supported the IRA say that they know that they need permitting reform, too, to be able uh, to enact those policies for uh, building out transmission lines and wind and solar. And we know that the oil and gas needs permitting reform for pipelines and upstream development and, and things of that nature. So um, I think as that starts to move through Congress, um, you know, it's going to, it's, you know, hard for Congress to get anything done on a bipartisan basis these days, but, but not impossible. And there's a very real will to try to do that this year. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. So uh, one of the things, I mean, some of our listeners are subject matter experts on the technological side of it. So, um, and working in Washington, D.C., it's about the policy technology interface. Do you have um, some thoughts or some engagement with your members with respect to technology, kinds of things that they want to see to help make the regulatory and the permitting and everything that you're doing, the advocacy piece, a little bit more transparent or easier or something? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So um, we've been doing a lot of work on the methane regulations out of EPA. And one of our primary objectives and kind of a shared goal that I, I do think we have with this administration is to allow some of the technology that companies are using to detect and mitigate methane, to allow that to sort of qualify under the EPA regulations. Um, as you know, industry is doing a lot in terms of developing and deploying new technologies, um, whether it's satellites or flyovers or lasers or fixed sensors, like it's really exciting to see the technology that our companies are utilizing, um, but it's still a really emerging space. And there's not a one size fits all approach that will work best for every operator because it depends a lot on operational footprint and basin that you're operating in. And so we, we, we have a shared goal, I think, with the administration to allow some of these technologies to uh, comply with the regulations uh, 
for uh, for methane that the EPA is developing. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that they're overly prescriptive in a way that would actually like disincentivize some of these technologies. So we're hopeful that this is an ongoing conversation that we can continue to have with the EPA as we work to finalize the regulations, which will happen later this year. Oh, later this year. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm not in the regulatory space. Uh, uh, certainly I was in the technology space. So, um, is that soon? Is that, I mean, what, what does that mean later this year? And then like, will it actually make a difference for people in the near term, like in 2023? Yeah, it, it absolutely will. So the, the, the new source um, rules, I believe go into effect in 2023, or maybe even upon uh, finalization of the regulations, um, uh, but uh, we are expecting them probably in the fall of this year. Um, and again, we're, we're, we're hoping for some changes from the EPA because we do have some concerns with the proposal that they have put out there. Um, but we are optimistic that um, we can make progress on at least some of the concerns that we've raised. Yeah, yeah. So you're actually involved, I guess, in a sense, in energy education on a lot of different fronts. And, and we talk about that. We talk about energy poverty, mm-hmm. energy security, national security, energy education. And things. So what are some of the things that you might want to say to some of our audience uh, who are not the subject matter experts, but want to learn a little bit, some of the important things about oil and gas that they should remember as they're thinking through what their personal policies are about energy? Yeah, that's a great question. And and energy education, we've launched a whole new initiative um, on energy education because there is so much to learn and understand um, that even a lot of uh, energy policy staff on the Hill and in the administration aren't aware of. So just a couple things um, I would mention is that, um, you know, oil and gas are an incredibly dense energy energy resource, and that is why they are so efficient and so widely used. Um, And so uh, while, you know, we've seen uh, an increase in the use of renewables, which, you know, we think is perfectly appropriate because we need all kinds of energy in a, a, you know, growing world, um, we have, we we know that uh, the energy density around renewables um, makes it such that, uh, you know, they're not able to power a growing global economy. Economy, right, and so knowing that, you know, we see a long-term trajectory for oil and natural gas into the future. Um, you know, the at the world energy demand is going to increase by 50% uh, from now to 2050. Um, and so we think all sources of energy are going to be needed, especially the sort of very energy dense ones. Natural gas. Uh, uh, emits about half as much of coal. So it's a great opportunity to be able to provide energy to the world in a lower emitting fashion. Um, A story that I think is, it's really sad that it's not more well known is that the United States leads the world in emissions reductions. Uh, We are the biggest, uh, we, we have reduced emissions more than any other country in the world. And the model that has worked here is actually because of the production increases that we've seen here, which unlocked vast amounts of natural gas, that natural, affordable, reliable, abundant natural gas displaced the use of coal in the power sector particularly. And so as we've become the top energy producer in the world, we also became the leading emissions reducer in the world. Um, So this narrative that like to meet climate goals, you have to get rid of fossil fuels. I mean, we've shown that in the United States, uh, quite the opposite is true. You just have to be thoughtful about your energy mix and intentional about your energy mix. Um, And 
what you know, so in the power sector, 60% of the emissions reductions that we've seen from the power sector were simply natural gas displacing coal. About the other 40% is from the increased use of renewables. Um, so I just think that's that's a really great story that is just not as well known as it should be. Yeah, no, it is a great story because I, I'm, I'm with you. All of the above works for me. Mm-hmm. You use what you have. You improve what you have. And that energy density of uh, oil and gas, is there's just no substitute for it. Yeah. There's a, a movie. Um, it's called uh, Sherwood, for- for- Sherwood Forest Top Secret. And it's about during World War II, where um, Germany did not have the oil and gas, they were dependent on coal, to fuel their planes. And so um, England uh, emissaries came to the United States to look for oil and gas producers who would help mm-hmm. them. Do you know that story? I, I, I have heard the story. I don't. I didn't know there was a movie, and now I'm oh, really excited to watch it. Oh, it's a brand new movie, it. and I'm bragging about it because one of my co-hosts for um, oh, Oil and Gas Network. Movie. It's a new movie, oh. and it's on a. It's kind of like a special and whatever. We'll we'll definitely put in the show notes for everyone to, to kind of follow up on, and I'll certainly will give you the the link as well because it's it's really. I watched it twice, and it's not a long movie. Yeah. But it's just so factual about how important it is and what a difference it makes. The energy density. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of a fuel makes mm-hmm. for making things possible for, for what you need yeah. to do. Yeah. And I also think, you know, that if you've got solar, use it. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but if you don't, you know, why have a penalty? That's where energy poverty comes from. So we're like that. So yeah. so what and are you looking... Oh, well, I just want to build on that real quick because, you know, I think the other thing, I'm super excited to watch this movie. I'm probably going to make my kids watch it too, <laughs> um, is uh, just what a strategic asset energy is for a nation. And we've really seen that over the last year. But I mean, our energy resources are the envy of the world. And um, they should be treated as a national asset. Um, And so, you know, national treasure. Absolutely. I mean, it allows us um, so much freedom for diplomacy. It allows us to support our allies around the world. It allows us to be less dependent on unstable nations um, and allows our allies to be uh, less dependent on unstable nations. And so it's it's such a critical resource. And it so, you know, it makes me sad when it's, you know, sometimes demonized um, because it, you know, it's as it's a... Undeserved. As a, it's undeserved. It's <laughs> undeserved. As a geopolitical asset, you know, it's hard to top, you know, what we have in our energy resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um... Let's see. Well, this is so exciting. Good conversation. I'm, I want to dig into your brain a little bit more. What are, what are your um, some of the um, the challenges or, or the, the the contributions you're expecting to be to see in the future with respect to upstream um, exploration production? What how do you how do you frame that for people who when you're trying to educate them about where we are now versus where we're going to be in the future? They certainly have thoughts about where we've been in the past. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's an incredibly innovative industry, as you know. You know, this is not like your father's oil and gas industry. It's it's incredibly right. innovative. Uh, you know, the energy revolution was driven by really uh, amazing innovations. And uh, the innovation, you know, it hasn't stopped, right? There, we're continuing to innovate with regards to our production, but also with regards to like, what is the future energy? What does the future of energy look like? And um, we know that, you know, there's there's a great potential for hydrogen to play a role there. We know that, you know, carbon capture and storage, one of the 
things that we did like in the Inflation Reduction Act um, was uh, the better, the greater incentives for carbon capture and storage to make that more economically viable. And so we have the potential to really lead the world in terms of you know how how do you how do you do carbon capture and storage and how do you make it economically viable. And so there's a lot of exciting things going on there. So I would say, you know, the, the, the industry is already thinking about, you know, how, how are we not only meeting the world's energy needs today, but how are we continuing to evolve uh, to be part of a lower carbon future while still meeting the world's energy needs at the same time? Yeah, yeah. And um, so we've got a skill set in the exploration and production arena mm-hmm. that actually is the only skill set that can help with some of these other technology with mm-hmm. these other energy uh, forms you know the geothermal mm-hmm. the C- the carbon uh, storage part mm-hmm. i mean certainly those are important things the subsurface mm-hmm. and so what what are some of the things that your members are looking at or or hoping that will kind of move forward in in that space it's yeah, I, I would just say you know I, I think carbon capture and storage is something that a number of my of my companies are looking at. Um, a lot of them are electrifying their operations um, and doing so in really innovative and interesting ways. So that even at the production stage, uh, you're using less emissions, and then looking at carbon capture and storage as a way to um, uh, to mitigate uh, you know the the scope three emissions, if you will, and so. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of really fun, interesting stuff happening in yeah. that space. Yeah, yeah. The the CO two EOR for me is really really exciting mm-hmm. that you can actually cycle through. It's net zero. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's really exciting. Why not use it, right? Yeah. Create that stability or that abundance of energy supply, and then but still be making a contribution with respect to the emissions. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's see. We are um, almost out of time. I want to give you plenty of time to share with some of the things that um, you think people should know about um, exploration and production, uh, maybe some other um, thoughts for, for people who are, like I said, our audience spans from people who are not subject matter experts in oil and gas, but those who are deep experts. I mean, mm-hmm. one of our, um, I think it was the last show or one of the last two shows that I recorded uh, was with um uh, Dr. Joe Morris of the National uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Oh, I mean, neat. we yeah, yeah, and and with uh, the universities and like that. So this technology policy interface is real important as we get people to think about innovation. What is kind of different? And the fact that you're not a technologist really is great, you know, uh, because you'll say whatever occurs to you with respect to what might be a contribution, and then let the scientists figure exactly, out and let yeah. the engineers turn it into something real. I know. I think we never should never hold back from what we know, how we can share it, and what it might inspire in someone else as far as an innovation um, idea. So what do some of your members think about those kinds of things? Well, um, I'm going to answer sort of a different question. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, Go ahead. Which I I think is like, to to your point, like I think one of the challenges our industry is facing as we look at sort of a longer time horizon is less and less younger people wanting to go into the oil and gas (gasps) Oh, that is a better question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's related, right? It is. And, it is. and um, I, I just think you highlighted so well that you know it, it's a it's actually a super exciting industry to get into. I mean, it's it's you know there's there's risk involved, but it's first of all some of the best and smartest people I've had the pleasure to work with in you know in my career. Um, 
and uh, and it's it's a great field for young people. And I, you know, it's it's really innovative. It's really exciting. It can, you know, you can stay domestic. You can travel internationally. Um, That's right. Onshore, offshore. Onshore, offshore. Yeah. There's uh, there's just there's so many different opportunities. Really, at every level. I mean, even at the at the sort of rig hand level, right? You know, people with um, you know you know maybe a high school diploma can make six figures in the oil field. Like it's it's there's an incredible opportunities for um, you know all the all the way up to you know CEOs and, and scientists and engineers. Um, there's just a great need for all of that in the oil and gas business. And as we talked about, the world needs oil and gas for a long time to come. Um, you know, it's 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 critical to solving you know global energy poverty and, and to you know pull people out of poverty around the globe. And it's a it's a really noble field. It is a noble field. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, it yeah. is <laughs> to go into. And so I guess I would just say if you know to the extent that there are young people listening or you know that. Uh, you know, people that have kids out there, I would just say, you know, encourage them to take a look at the oil and gas industry because there's a lot of really exciting things happening. And I hope um, that more and more talented people uh, come into the industry. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that. Yeah, that is one of my themes. And you helped me get it back to it. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Well, we are at um, time. Is there any parting thoughts you want to share. Uh, appreciate so much you being here with us today. Thanks so much. I, I would just mention to anybody that wants to learn more about the organization, you can go to axpc.org. We also have an action center for people that want to write their congressman or you know get involved in legislative issues. And you can follow us on social media. Our Twitter is at axpc underscore US. Thank you, Anne. Anne Bradbury, Chief Executive Officer of the American Exploration and Production Council. Thank you so much for being with our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions and those of your members to Upstream Oil and Gas. Thanks, Elena. It was great to be here. Thank you, and thank everyone for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil and Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.